Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I am your host, Talea Dindi. Today, our very special guest is Spencer Bishens. Spencer is with us today to talk about the disability programs that are available on the federal and state levels. I think that we could all use a little bit more clarification on the disability process. Spencer Bishens has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. After law school, he worked in the private sector for two years prior to joining the Social Security Administration, SSA, in 2010. He worked at the Appeals Council for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with SSA's complex rules and procedures. He then worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for SSA administrative law judges. After working for SSA for more than 10 years, Spencer wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. Thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It is my pleasure, Spencer, and I'm so happy to have you because this topic Social Security, SSA, SSI, it has been a nightmare for many people. And it has been a huge obstacle for people that have been diagnosed with cancer and they can no longer work. Thank you again, Spencer, for coming on and sharing your expertise. As I just shared in your background, you have years of experience. Please explain to us, Spencer, what the difference is between SSA 
SSDI and SSI. So SSDI is Social Security Disability Insurance and SSI Supplemental Security Income. Tell us about those programs and how they're different. Yeah, this is obviously a really great topic to start with because it is super confusing and Social Security doesn't really provide a whole lot of educational material to explain the difference between the two programs. But they are, of course, very different. And I talk about this in more depth in part one of the book. But it is good to get an overview for what we'll talk about later when we talk about how someone who has been diagnosed with cancer might become eligible for benefits. So there's two programs, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, also called Title II benefits because that's in Title II of the Social Security Act. And these are earned benefits. People work either as W-2 employees, if you're just a regular employee and you get a pay stub and your taxes get taken out by your employer, you'll see something on there that says OASDI. It might say FICA, F-I-C-A, although that term is different because that includes the Medicare tax. But the OASDI tax that gets taken out of your paycheck, that stands for Old Age Survivor and Disability Insurance. It's not a, an artful name. As it should be retirement. What it really means is retirement survivors and disability insurance. And all that tax goes into one pot of money. And most of us think of Social Security as something we get when we're older, right? After we're 65, 66, 67, we get, air quotes, Social Security. But what we really mean when we say that is Social Security retirement. But of course, for those people who are injured or sick or have chronic illness and can't work, there is a disability program and it all comes from the same pot of money. So if you are awarded disability benefits, specifically EI benefits, it's because you paid in that tax for many years and you earned the credits and you had this insurance, even though you didn't know you had it, most people don't know they are paying into an insurance program with social security, but they are. And so when they need those benefits are there for them. The other program is supplemental security income. That's SSI and that's title 16 of the social security act. And those benefits are not based on an insurance program. Those benefits are paid for through just regular income taxes. And it's really, that program is really more for people who don't have the insurance benefits, either because they didn't pay in enough or long enough, or there's been a gap in their work activity, or it's been many years since they've worked. Also, children don't work, or if you're 18, 19, 20, and you haven't earned enough credits, maybe recent immigrants to the United States haven't earned enough credits. There's all these different reasons why someone didn't pay into the Title II program. So there is a separate program for them, SSI. But I will say this before we move on, that SSI program is 
way more unstable. The benefits are much less. It's an asset and income means tested program. So it's really difficult to qualify and to continue to qualify. And there are so many different things that can offset those benefits. So the stability of benefits on the SSI program is really limited. And so it's there to keep you from becoming unhoused or starving, but that's basically it. It's not the program that you want to be in if you can avoid it. In other words, if you have Title II insurance coverage, Social Security will steer you into that program because the benefits are a lot better. It comes with Medicaid coverage, you can even work while getting benefits. It's a program the agency has to encourage you to try and go back to work. You get that with the Title II program. So the two programs are very different and it all comes down to, did you pay that social security tax? Did you pay into the system and earn credits long enough to earn enough credits to qualify for those benefits? Thank you, Spencer, for explaining that. How would one know how many credits they have or if they've worked? How would they right. know? It's very confusing because there's a general test, but of course, like everything with the government, there's a bunch of exceptions. And the reason there's exceptions is really just because of age. The general rule, and I lay, of course, I lay this all out in detail in part two of the book, but the general rule is you have to have earned 20 quarter credits in the last 40 quarters. Of course, there's four quarters in a calendar year. So 20 out of 40 just means out of the last 10 years, you have to have the equivalent of five years of work activity with credits. It doesn't have to be five years in a row, which is why we do it by quarter. So as long as out of those 10 years or 40 quarters, you've earned 20 credits, you're insured. But because young people between the ages of 18 and 30 haven't had as much time to work, we don't immediately say, as soon as you turn 18, you have to have five years of work. That makes no sense, right? So it's incremental for young people in their 20s, and it builds up to that 20 out of 40 test. But nobody knows how many quarter... I guess if you've worked full-time for at least five years, you've earned at least 20 credits, right? But nobody knows what they've earned. You can go to the social security website, sign up for my social security account. And there's a lot of great information on there, such as how much money you would get if you became disabled. I think you could look up and see how far your insurance goes out into the future. You could, of course, contact social security and just say, I want my whole quarter credit history, but that's not really necessary. All you really need to know is, are you insured? When are you insured through? That's called the date last insured. But even that's a bit of a misnomer because as you continue to work and continue to pay the tax and earn the credits, that date keeps being pushed out into the future. The short answer is you could contact social security. The thing is you may not need to if you've been working steadily for five or 10 years. But for a lot of people, that's not the case, right? They have part-time jobs and they have they get a job. And because of their medical diagnoses, it's get a job, I have to quit. I get another job, I have to quit. So that person with a work record that's not consistent, that person probably has absolutely no idea 
if they're insured or when they're insured. And so that person might want to contact Social Security for that information. One more thing on this topic, even if your date last insured is in the past, so you stop earning the credits and you have a date last insured, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the date that your insurance ends and we move past that in time. So now your date last insured is in the past. All that means is you can't file a disability claim saying you're disabled today. But let's say your date last insured was December 31st, 2019. If you could prove you were disabled before that date, you could still access Title II benefits. I know this is all really confusing. <laughs> it's obviously a topic that's we could do a whole season of your podcast yes. just on this topic, right? That's why I wrote the book. It's a plain language book and it lays all this out where it explains what these terms mean. But because this is a topic that's very like date intense, mm -hmm. right? Because when did you stop working? How many credits did you earn? When is your date last insured? Give examples. And I think examples for this topic in particular, for all the topics in the book, but for this topic in particular, it's really helpful to have hypothetical examples where I say, you know, here's how long someone worked, here's their date last insured, if they become disabled on this date, are they eligible or are they not? And I think those examples really do a really good job at explaining this this is one of the most complicated concepts in a sea of complicated concepts but it's important to know obviously if you qualify for the title II benefits because of just like i said earlier how unstable those ssi benefits are yes to your point spencer about all the different topics i know we're going to talk more about your book a little bit later but I just want to ask this question up front. Is your book laid out in a way that a person could just go to the table of contents and say, hey, I need help with this specific thing and just go to that section? Or does it have to be read in order? Both. And here's why I say that. The first part is about my background and why I wrote the book and the initial level of review when you first apply for Social Security. Part two is about the sequential evaluation process, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit. And that's how social security makes its decisions. Part three is about the hearing level. So it does move sequentially. And then I get into appeals. So yes, it does move sequentially. And if you wanted to jump in at a certain point, you could. But having said that, I might use terminology that I've explained earlier in the book. And so without that foundation, you might get to a term and think, I don't know what that means. Now, I thought about that. And so in the back of the book, I put a plain language glossary. It's not dictionary definitions. It says something like date last and short. And just here's what that means in a couple sentences. So that you can jump in if you need to. If you just want to know, okay, I have my hearing coming up. I want to start with what is the hearing? What does that mean? Who's going to be there? You could do that, but it's probably going to be more easily understood with the foundation from part one and part two of the book. Thank you for breaking that down and explaining that. Spencer, why are so many people denied at the beginning of the application process? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. The denial rate when people first apply is like 70%, it's quite high. And there's 
there's two main reasons that I talk about it in the book. The first one is applications at that point, really early on, are just not put together very well. If we all think about our own medical records, you probably see a lot of different sources, especially someone who's been diagnosed with cancer. You've probably got your primary care doctor, then maybe you saw an orthopedist, and then maybe they did an MRI, and that's where cancer was discovered. And so then you go to see an oncologist. So we see all these different medical sources, and maybe they're in completely different networks or hospital systems. And so you've got all these different records in all these different places. And we just don't have a great records keeping system in the United States. So it's hard for patients, especially patients who are battling chronic illness or something like cancer, they're thinking about their health and getting better. It's a full-time job to get all your medical records together, get them organized and fill in the gaps and get them to social security and then have them be good enough to prove that you meet the definition and the standards for finding you disabled, which we'll talk about later, of course. The other reason that so many claims are denied upfront is unfortunately, the people who make those decisions early on are, they have an incentive to deny claims. It's just, I'm not gonna sugarcoat that. A lot of people who apply, a lot of people end up applying for SSI, as we talked about earlier. If you're approved for SSI, often that means you can get access to Medicaid. Mm. Medicaid is a program that is partially funded by the federal government, but partially funded by the state. So you have state employees deciding if you're disabled, but if they find you disabled, you'll be eligible for Medicaid funding, which partially comes from the state. So in order to have fewer people access state Medicaid funding, they deny disability claims. And if you're denied, and maybe you can't get access to Medicaid. So that's one of those things that the agency doesn't say exists. They're not going to admit that's what's happening. But you can see that misaligned incentive where it's not an independent decision maker like it is when you get to the hearing level and you have a judge who works directly for Social Security. So it's a combination of reasons at that initial level. It's medical records that maybe don't tell a complete story or they're just incomplete because you're still getting treatment. Or maybe you've been out of work, but for less than 12 months. And part of Social Security's definition is you have to show an inability to work for a full 12 months. So there's a variety of reasons why that happens at the initial level. And a lot of that goes away when you get to the hearing. You have better developed records. You have a longer period of time. You've had independent decision makers. And so no surprise, the approval rate does get better when you get to the hearing level. Thank you for explaining that. That sounds like a lengthy process, especially for someone who is not in the best health. And that's almost everybody, right? Yeah. Whether it's an injury, I was working in a warehouse and a box fell on me, or I lifted something and hurt my back, or I have a cancer diagnosis, or I have fibromyalgia, or it's a mental health impairment. Every disability claimant has a medical story. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's something that they're dealing with. And the agency just puts up these barriers 
which is on top of the barriers you're already dealing with your medical situation and potentially financially because you can't work and maybe you're having difficulty paying rent, et cetera. And so all of these things end up hitting you at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And to that point, Spencer, if someone is diagnosed with cancer or they can no longer work due to cancer treatment, which program should they apply for? Yes, this is the question I've been looking forward to since we started, right? Because obviously your audience wants to know, I have been diagnosed with cancer, a family member has been diagnosed with cancer, where we've been in cancer treatment, we can't work, what do we do? Like, where do we start? So let's start with, yes, there are two programs, but if you apply for SSI benefits, the agency will actually check to see if you have insurance for SSDI. Earlier, I said the agency will steer you into that program. And I meant that literally in the sense that if you are eligible for SSDI, that's what they'll consider you for because they want to move anyone who's eligible for those benefits into that program. And anyone else who's not eligible, they'll consider for SSI benefit. But either way, whether it's an SSI application or an SSDI application or both, a lot of applications are concurrent applications, meaning the person has applied for both benefit programs at the same time. Regardless of which of those three iterations it is, Social Security uses the same process to decide if someone is disabled. And this process is all of part two of the book because it's that important that someone understands really early on how Social Security makes decisions. How do they decide if I'm disabled? What does disabled even mean? So this process is called the five-step sequential evaluation process. Sequential evaluation, meaning they consider the steps in order. It's the government. So it might not surprise you to learn that the five-step process has either six or seven steps, but never five. The reason it's six or seven, the difference is what we talked about earlier. If you have an SSDI claim, the first thing they have to do is make sure you're insured. And I call that step zero in the book because it's unnumbered, but you can't be considered for an SSDI claim, which is an insurance program, mm -hmm. unless you are insured. The other six steps are the same between the SSI and the SSDI programs. And I think it would benefit us to go through that because that will explain to your listeners where they can be found disabled along that path hmm. and how that would work. Wonderful. I'll move through these steps that are the sad steps faster, and I'll move through the happy steps in a little more detail. Step zero is only for SSDI, and that's are you insured? For both programs, step one, are you performing substantial gainful activity? That's a fancy way of saying, are you working and earning money? And if you are working and earning over a certain amount, Social Security doesn't consider you for your disability claim. So the first thing is you can't be currently working and earning too much. You can work, but you have to keep your earnings under a certain amount. And I explained that in the book, of course, with an example. Step two is, do you have a severe impairment? Severe does not mean what you think it means. Severe impairment, according to Social Security, just means an impairment that 
more than minimally impacts some kind of life activity. So literally any medical impairment that limits sitting, standing, walking, being around others, thinking, lifting, carrying at all is considered <laughs> severe by Social Security. It's a very, very low bar to get over. Almost anyone with any medical impairment and evidence will be able to get past step two. All right, step three is a happy step. Okay. Because at step one, you could be denied if you're working. At step two, you could be denied if you don't have an impairment that even barely impacts your brain and your body. But at step three, it's the opposite. At step three, now you could only be approved. You cannot be denied. And there's these things in the social security regulations called the listings. And if someone goes into an unbranded internet search engine and searches SSA linked cancer, that's it. And you click the first thing that comes up. And it's actually section 13 of the listings. And what these are just like basically a paragraph each for all the different kinds of cancer that Social Security acknowledges. And it will tell you in each one of these listings, and it goes all the way through 13.29. So there's a lot of them. What you need to show thyroid cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, skin cancer, intestinal cancer, other kinds of cancer. And if you meet the requirements in that listing, you're approved. Super simple. At step three of the process, if you meet the elements in that listing, you're approved. But even if you don't strictly meet those requirements, you could still also be approved if your condition is so severe that it's equivalent to the severity described in those listings. So step three is great for the claimant because it's a way to be approved and you can't be denied. Now, there's another way to be approved, so we have to keep walking forward. The next step is the extra step. Remember how the five-step process has mm -hmm. six steps? Yes. It's because there's a step between steps three and four. I call it step 3.5, but it doesn't have an official step number. And it's where Social Security says, okay, if you don't meet those listing criteria, let's just decide what you can do as far as work even with your impairments considered. How much can you lift? How much can you carry? How much can you stand and walk? How many hours a day could you work? With regard to mental limitations, could you be around people? Can you concentrate? Can you focus? All of that. And the judge will say, all right, here's all the things you can do. It's called the residual functional capacity, which is three fancy words that just mean what's left over that you can do even though you've got medical impairment. Okay. Your functional capacity is what you can do, residual after we consider the fact that you have some loss of functioning due to your impairments. But here's what you can still do. And then at step four, the agency says, given what you can do, can you do any of your past work? And if the answer is no, and of course that's a step where you can have only be denied. If you can do your past work, they say you're not disabled. Step five is the end of the road. And so you can be approved or denied at step five. But step five is where the agency says, can you do any other work in the national economy? 
as long as it is, exists in significant numbers, is a pretty low bar. A couple thousand jobs in the entire nation will be considered significant. So really, what we're just saying is, is there other work you can do in the national economy? There are a lot of jobs in the national economy, right? But this is really where the rubber meets the road for so many disability claims, because it's not just, I've been diagnosed with cancer, I've had to undergo radiation, undergo chemo, I can't work, I'm really sick, I've got all these symptoms. The agency will say, we understand all of that, but if we find you can work eight hours a day, five days a week, doing a really simple, routine, repetitive job, we're going to find that you're not disabled. And that's really the disconnect. I know it's a long explanation to move all the way through the sequential evaluation process, but I wanted to make sure your listeners understand those listings that step three exists, because if your doctors can help you provide, get evidence and show evidence that you meet those listing requirements, we don't even ask about your work and what you can do for work. So those listings, those cancer listings in section 13, those are really important for your audience because you want to try and avoid that question of, can you do any work in the national economy? And the way you can avoid that is by being found disabled at step three of the process. So those listings are super, super important for that reason. But it's also really hard. They're very strict requirements. And so most cases actually do move past step three. And at that point, a claimant has to show they can't do any work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy. And that's really difficult to prove. That's just how the law is written when the Social Security Act was passed by Congress and it's been revised over time. They have decided that's the standards. It's hard to get Social Security benefits, even though you're sick or injured, even though you know you can't work. Proving that in order to get those benefits is a really difficult task. And this is why. And of course, like I said, in the book and in part two of the book, I fully flesh all of that out with examples showing what each step means and all the elements of each step. So this is just the basic overview. Wow. But I wanted to make sure your listeners understand that there are two different ways to be approved at step three with those listings and at step five, which is more of a vocational determination. And that for something like and there are listings for other medical impairments, but obviously I know your show focuses on cancer. Yes. And be, because cancer patients see specialists, I'm assuming every yes. cancer patient seeing an oncologist at mm -hmm. some point, those oncologists are probably really familiar with these listing requirements and they probably know exactly what you have to show. And I will say this, from having written over two, almost 2,000 disability decisions and writing and reviewing almost 5,000 total during my time with Social Security, if I saw a medical opinion from a highly specialized doctor like an oncologist that talked about all the listing criteria and how and why my patient met those criteria, that's really persuasive, mm. right? Because it's a highly specialized doctor who only does cancer, all these ear cancer patients, and if they can attest with their training and expertise that their patient meets these requirements, 
that's going to be found to be a really persuasive piece of evidence by Social Security. Thank you, Spencer, so much for going into detail on that because that is very important and it's an area you just explained it so well and you displayed so well how it could be so confusing and at times a gray area. That leads me to my next question. I know medical records and things like that are very important, but what do you believe is one of the first things a person should do when they are diagnosed with cancer, just in case they have to rely on one of these programs down the road? That's a great, great question because the earlier on in the process, that you can foresee that you're gonna be entering the process, the better, because obviously you can learn about the process and you can prepare for it. And I wrote the book so that someone at the very beginning, before they, like when they first get diagnosed, if they think this might be coming down the line, they can read the book, know the whole process. But as you pointed out earlier, I also wrote it in a way where even if you're in the process or maybe you've been denied, and you want to think, what do I do now? And also learn what happened. Why did I get denied? I wrote the book so that you can jump in at any point in the process and figure out where to go from here and what the next steps are. But of course, as you mentioned, getting in early, that's the best thing you can do. And there's a couple of things. Obviously, number one is educating yourself on the Social Security Disability Program with more than just a 45-minute podcast because we've only just touched the surface of what all of the complexities of the program. So educating yourself on the differences in the programs and the sequential evaluation, how Social Security will review your medical records. They're going to send you to see their own doctor. Who's that person? what's gonna happen at that appointment, and why are they sending you to see their own doctor? They'll pay for it. Social Security pays for that appointment, but you're gonna to have to go or they're gonna throw your claim out. So you, you wanna know why you're going because that person is not on your side. They're being mm -hmm. paid by Social Security. So it's good to know all of that. The other thing you wanna do is make sure you're getting really good documentation which may be less of an issue with diagnostic studies and seeing an oncologist who's an MD or a DO. But if you're getting all, any alternative forms of treatment for pain management, acupuncture, massage therapy, counseling, these are all great resources, but honestly, many of them may not keep great records or they may be handwritten records. So every source you want to just say to them, what kind of records do you keep? Can I get my records? It's not, they're your medical records. It's a perfectly fine question to ask. And you want to know up front if that person doesn't keep great records, because you may then want to consider seeing a different source who will be able to give you that documentation so that you have when you need it. The third thing is, and I recommend that everyone, of course, I think everyone should read the book because that's got all the information and that's how you educate yourself as a claimant, right? Or as a claimant's family member. But you're not an expert on social security. Even though you're reading the book, you're not the expert. You need to hire someone to represent you who is an expert, who knows the system, who knows how to submit evidence, who knows how the judges operate. The other thing that's really important is to get 
a really good, knowledgeable, qualified social security disability representative. Full disclosure, that's not me. I don't take disability cases. I'm not selling my services. I recommend that everyone get a representative if they can, local in their town or in a moderate to major city near them. There's 200 hearing offices all around the country and every city that has a hearing office will have local representatives who have offices around the hearing office. So find someone near you who that you can sit down, lay out your medical evidence, which may literally be a stack of paper, and talk to that person. Even if it's early in the process, they may not take your case right away, but they'll be able to give you some guidance. And they'll say, okay, here's when I would be able to help represent you. The earlier you can educate yourself and get a professional in your corner, the better. And there's one more thing I want to say about representation, because I was talking to someone recently and she said, I didn't get a lawyer. I can't afford a lawyer. You don't have to pay a lawyer. Actually, it's not even just lawyers. There's plenty of good non-attorney representatives. So whether the representative is a lawyer or a non-lawyer representative, the key is that they're a social security expert. And the key from the claimant's perspective is you don't have to pay them. The way they get paid is very strictly dictated under the social security rules. And the short version is they only get paid if you get a favorable outcome and they will get paid a small portion of any of your past due benefits after you get a favorable outcome. And I explained all that in the book, but the basics of that are you don't have to pay them anything up front. And even if you win your case, you don't even pay them then. Social Security will pay them directly from your benefits and they'll pay you the rest of your benefits. And it's a small portion of benefits and it's capped. And I can tell you from the experience of seeing thousands of disability cases, many of which had a representative and many of which the person did not have a representative, I can tell you that those cases where someone does not have a representative, they're just not presented as well. There's gaps in the evidence. The evidence doesn't tell the whole story. The representatives, they know what they're doing and they earn their fee. Thank you so much for sharing that, Spencer. There's two questions I wanna get to before we wrap up here. The first one is, how is someone supposed to pay for medical care and things like that if they have little to no income and they're waiting for this application process to be completed? It's an unfortunate situation, isn't it? Where in the United States, we don't have a public health care system, mm -hmm. right? So you get your insurance through work, but then when you can't work, you lose your health insurance. So you can't go see medical sources. So you can't get documentation. So when you go and try and get the benefits because you're not working, Social Security says you're required to not work, but you're required to have to continue getting medical care. Like it doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. does it? it if your listeners are out there shaking their heads thinking, what is he talking about? This makes no sense. You're right. It doesn't. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. It's a stupid system. And it's really unfortunate because it's the people who are facing these serious medical conditions and complications that are the victims of this situation. And a lot of times what Social Security sees is medical treatment while you're working 
And then when you stop working, the medical treatment just falls off. And a judge will ask in a hearing, why did you stop getting treatment? I heard this so many times. The claimant says, I lost my job. I had to quit. I lost my insurance. I couldn't afford it. And the judges understand that. They know that's what's happening. And yet they still then have this gap in medical treatment that kind of makes it look like you don't need the treatment. And some judges will even say that in the decision or they'll instruct the person writing the decision. That was my job. I wrote decisions for the judges to say, oh, this person stopped getting medical treatment. I guess he didn't need it anymore, which is, of course, not what's happening. But a judge that wants to deny a claim, that's one of the things that they'll say. They'll say, well, stop getting treatment. He didn't get treatment for that last year and a half before the hearing. I guess he was fine and was able to work. And so we're going to find that he can go back to work. And that's really unfortunate. I do provide some suggestions in the book. I'm not a doctor, not a medical professional. I'm a lawyer. So part four is written from a legal perspective not suggesting where you should get care medically, but talking about how the agency looks at evidence and suggestions for where you could get care and how the agency would treat that evidence. That's part four of the book. And I put that section in there because of this very problem. The fact that so many people can't just go see an expensive specialist doctor and the thing is, when you have cancer, like you have no choice. Yeah. You're not going to see an alternative form of treatment when you have cancer. You need to see a medical doctor, an oncologist. Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for you and could explain exactly what to do. I can't because it's a bad system. But I can say that I do have at least some suggestions in the book, okay. things that people may not have thought of where they could think outside the box a little bit and how to get some treatment if they can't afford the treatment they should actually be getting. Great. Thank you so much. Finally, Spencer, cannabis, CBD, those kinds of things have become more popular for use to offset side effects and things like that from cancer treatment and other ailments. How can those things impact a disability claim? Yeah, this is this has its whole its own chapter in the book because there is a law from 1996 uh, that, that talks about drug abuse and alcoholism and cannabis, while it's legal in one form or another in the majority of states and without the need for prescription in many states, of course, it is still illegal federally. That has never been changed. And this law from the 90s, so that this law treats cannabis like it's the worst possible thing. And if you're on cannabis, you're quote, on drugs, oh, yeah. but, but it doesn't touch cigarettes or smoking or tobacco in any way, because there are a lot of members of Congress from the South. And when this law was passed, remember, this is the 90s. This was even before tobacco companies admitted or acknowledged in any way that their products were a problem. What you have is this law leaving cigarettes alone while viciously targeting the number one competitor to cigarettes, wow. alcohol, and other drugs. Yeah, the law is 26 years old, and it's the agency has tried to update its guidance a little bit with how it applies the law. 
but there's only so much they can do because that is still a law passed by Congress and the agency has to enforce it until Congress amends it. And so the way that works is the, the judge will ask, what is the basis for you being disabled? If they think you're disabled, why are you disabled? So let's take someone in this situation who has cancer, who is getting treatment, maybe chemotherapy, and they're also using cannabis to help with nausea or other symptoms. So the judge will consider both impairments, cancer and what they will call substance abuse, and say, what? but what is the actual reason why you can't work? And the way they do that is they consider both impairments, and let's say they find, okay, both impairments, you're disabled, you can't work. Now we're gonna remove any substance use from consideration. Now with all the remaining non-substance impairments, if they find that now you can work, then it was the substance use that was the difference. And if the substance use, if that's the key that keeps you from working, the law says you cannot get disability benefits. And that's Congress's way of saying, if it's drugs or alcohol that's causing you to be disabled, we're not paying you benefits. But if it's ancillary, which it is for most people, right? Most exactly. people are using yes. uh, substances like cannabis as self-treatment yes. to reduce their symptoms, to maybe help them try and go back to work. Yeah. The good news though is the judges understand that, especially I'm from Washington state. Washington was one of the first states that had cannabis without the need for prescription. I don't like the term recreational because it, it sounds like people are just using it for fun, whereas it does have medicinal qualities. You just don't need a prescription. You walk into a store, you buy it. And the judges in Washington state, they understood that. They understood that people were not buying it on the street, that you can buy it in a store, that it's illegal under state law. And they would ask the person, why were you using it? And when the person says, I was using it to help my pain, to reduce my pain, to reduce nausea, to try and reduce my symptoms so I could try and maybe go back to work at least part time. I will give the judges some credit. A lot of times they understand that and they'll say, okay, this is not what's causing the person disabled. If anything, it's going the other way. Yeah. This is helping to, them to be less disabled. But that's how the drugs and alcohol law works. And it's, of course, way more complicated, and I go through it all in the book with thorough examples, but it is something to consider, and it is another reason why it's really important to have a representative, because they know the drug and alcohol law really well, and you want to make sure that if cannabis or alcohol are mentioned anywhere in your medical records, you need to know how to present that information to the judge. And if not, you could very well be in a situation where the judge denies your claim, whether or not they're allowed to do this, because they see that you were on drugs, in air quotes, right? And you don't want that. So you want to make sure that you know the law, all the processes and procedures. And we've only covered a handful of them today. That's why it's important to read the book and know this information, but also to have a representative. The reason both are important, just to conclude, is a lot of people will just get a representative and they don't educate themselves on the process. Well, that representative represents you, but they're really busy people. They have a lot of clients and they don't have time to give you the level of education that the book gives you. 
And the reason not to do it the other way, and I say in the book, this is not the time to be DIYing something, yes. is it's a legal process. And if you're not a lawyer and you're not a social security expert, I don't fix my own car engine. I don't fill my own cavities. I don't do my own surgery. So like, why would I handle my own legal proceeding? If you would hire a professional for all these, to do your dry cleaning, then when you have a legal proceeding with tens of thousands of dollars on the line and Medicare coverage, which is also a substantial benefit, go hire a legal professional. It's not the time, especially because you don't have to pay them up front. They only get paid if you win. So it's definitely not the time to DIY. You want to educate yourself and have a good professional representative so that you can work with the representative to present your evidence in the best possible light to give yourself the best chance at having your case approved. Wow, Spencer, you have shared so much helpful information. Thank you so much for your time, the level of detail that you have went into, and then also just making sure that people understand what's really important up front, which I think is critical. So Spencer, tell people where they can find this much needed book and also where they can reach you if you know they have any questions or anything like that. Yeah, this is super easy. It's bishinspublishing.com is our website, B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. We've got a description of the contents of the book. We've got links to all our social media, a link to email us. And we've even got links to listen to interviews, including this one. I'll put that on there. And that way, you can find all the resources all in one place. And of course, there's links to all the different places to buy the book, including you can just ask your local library to carry it and they can get it in ebook or paperback format. So we wanna make sure that we're providing people with all the possible resources that we can give people access to, free resources, ways to get the book for free, we want to make sure that if you want to know what's going on, if you want to be educated on the process, we want those tools to be there for you. We don't want anyone going into the social security disability process not knowing what's about to happen. Knowing what's going to happen, knowing the process, it's not going to guarantee that you'll be approved, right? No one can guarantee that, but it will provide a level of comfort a level of familiarity, knowing I know what's gonna happen. I know what's required. I know what I need to show. So now I have a little bit more confidence that I can go into this process and that I can do this or that I can help my family member who's going through cancer treatment. We can do this together. We know how to do it. We have this roadmap for success. And this is something that we don't need to be afraid of anymore. Spencer, again, thank you for all that you're doing. This is so important. I cannot stress enough for people to listen to this, to share this, to get the book. And 
get the representative if you're in that situation where you need some help don't try to do it alone spencer is an expert he knows he's worked in that industry in that sector for many years spencer again thank you so much for joining us today before we end i'd like to give a shout out to the listeners thank you so much for joining us that is it for this wednesday and until next time let's keep navigating cancer together take care Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.